Hello, thank you for joining me on Humanities Radio. I'm Janet Cunningham with the University of Utah College of Humanities, and this season I'll be in discussion with professors from across our college about their latest book publications. I'm currently on the phone with Lance Olson, Professor Emeritus of English, to discuss Always Crashing in the Same Car, a fictional exploration of David Bowie's consciousness and interactions in his final months of battling liver cancer. I, before we kind of get started, I'm super excited to talk to you about all the different aspects of this book because as I got on, into it, it was just so intriguing and so interesting, um, mostly because of the combination of the subject and the form and all the ways it kind of challenges challenged the reader. It was just so interesting. But before we get into that, I would love for you to just give an introduction and provide a bit of an overview about the book and kind of explain what motivated you to... Uh, write this book, and explore the last months of David Bowie's life. Sure, and and thanks so much. That makes me very happy to hear. So so the subtitle of Always Crashing the Same Car is a novel after David Bowie, and that might give us a good place to start. There are sort of two meanings going on in my mind um, uh, that live in that after. Uh, On the one hand, it's after in the sense of the book is written after David Bowie's mm-hmm. death. But on the other, it's a book that's sort of in search of David Bowie. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I, it's that kind of book that you trying to understand somebody and you run after and after and after them and all you do is get farther and farther mm-hmm. away. So I've always been drawn to Bowie's innovative music, particularly the, the Berlin trilogy from the mid-70s, mm-hmm. Low, Heroes, and Lodger. And his last few albums um, before his death in 2016, which are just incredible, The Next Day and Black Star. And then also to his, you know, what would you call sort of chameleonic, often sort of conflicted and conflicting personalities. He didn't have just one personality. So it was a natural choice, I think, for me to write a novel that used fact to write fiction in order to explore what Bowie accomplished, Mm -hmm. who he was, but also who he wasn't and what others made of him. And so to do that, you know, and uh, I used multiple voices, multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm. So I guess another way of saying it is I'm deeply interested sort of outside that book, um, that book being an emblem of this, uh, I'm deeply interested in how we read others, um, Mm -hmm. how we're read by them, how it's all, you know, we can tell the past with something even close to accuracy and what it feels like also um, at a whole different level, being the opposite of young as Bowie was, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. he was an old rock and roller by, by the last 20 years of his life and still committed to musical and existential experimentation, even as sort of Mr. Blue-Eyed Death leaned against the, the wall across the room, filing his fingernails. Mm-hmm. So you seem to have this kind of connection or th- this great interest in David Bowie's life, not preceding this book. Um, So who you talk about his multiple personalities and, you know, how he had, there were many versions of David Bowie. Who was David Bowie to you? Yeah. And I think in a, in a deep structure way, I don't know the David Bowie I know. (laughs) Um, and, And what I mean by that is, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, this is a novel. Ultimately I went in, because after his death, I became very interested in just starting to pick up some of the biographies and read, you know, who David Bowie was. And the more I went into this, and I think this is true for a lot of people who do 
sort of intensive research on a subject, the more you go into it, the less you understand it. You think you got everything figured <laughs> out, um, and then and then less and less and less. So at, I, I think the largest level, or or at least one of the largest levels, um, always crashing is a novel about unknowing, and also unlearning, you know, continuously okay. and sort of re reevaluating, repositioning oneself with respect to one subject. Okay. So you say you did a lot of extensive research. So how did you prepare to kind of get in to his mindset in those last months or just kind of get into just what you thought maybe he would be feeling and thinking? Yeah. And so, you know, I confess up front, I'm an obsessive personality. <laughs> so, so the first thing I did, I mean, ever since I was probably a, a teenager, like 16, 17, I was listening to Bowie. But I'd never listened to Bowie from beginning to end, so, you know, okay. listening over and over again to the albums and, and actually being pretty shocked at how different the albums uh -huh. were, how much, you know, he just changed over time from album to album. He's one of those artists, I mean, in a lot of ways, reminiscent of someone like Picasso who you know, just reinvented himself. And it was just like, you know, now I'm done with that. That's boring. Let me move on to something else. That's pretty cool. Um, looking at and reading a whole bunch of interviews with him, he's a, you know, we'll probably talk about this, but he was a really um, complicated, um, sometimes very manipulative kind of person. And, and one of the things they say about him, which comes across loud and clear if you listen to some of his interviews, is he would actually change his accent depending on who was interviewing him to better sort of like unconsciously let that guy or woman engage with him and he engaged with. So he, he had a very strange sort of way of doing that. Then I started to read the biographies. And, and, you know, thought I would get a handle and every biography started to create a new Bowie. And I, I started to realize, you know, so in, in a lot of ways, he's a kind of black box figure. There's so much about his life mm -hmm. that isn't known, especially over the course of the last, say, 20, 25 mm -hmm. years of his life. And so, so the more you read, or at least the more I read, the less um, I, I, I came to understand in a good way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the one thing I really am eager to get into is talking about this collage style form they use for this book. Because I think when I started reading this book, I kind of went into it thinking it was just, it was going to be a typical fictional story of David Bowie's life. But you use this collage style form that was so interesting and different. And I would love for you to kind of explore what the college style form is. And also, I would love to know what came first for this book, the form or the topic of David Bowie? That's a great question. Let, let me start with question number two first and, <laughs> okay. then, and then question number one. But so I am very weird as a, as a writer, <laughs> at least if, if I'm anything like, uh, um, you know, sort of talking to my friends about this and so on, who, who are writers, I form often comes to me first. Okay. And then I sort of back into um, the novel. And as I was reading the biographies, as I say, you know, it was a different Bowie in each of the biographies. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. So, so how do you do that? Like, how do you capture that without just duplicating the failure that the biographers had of getting to Bowie. Okay. And so I started this whole idea of thinking through a collage form. And, and for me, what is 
intriguing is how form suggests philosophy. So, so a lot of times when we read novels, you know, we read them for their theme mm-hmm. and, and we read them for their character and we read them for, you know, setting all, all those things that we love about, about novels. But a lot of times we don't pay attention to the actual form the novel is mm-hmm. taking, whether right. it's perpetuating certain ways of viewing the world or, or disrupting them. And for me, you know, form grows out of a kind of, of philosophy. So actually, I'm not sure there's, there's a difference between the two. And that idea of multiple voices, which mm-hmm. is what collage is all about, kind mm-hmm. of rubbing um, very um, uncommensurate things together um, to, get, to get that sense of tension, that sense of contradiction and so on, suggests that there's no sensual vision in a narrative. You know, a lot of, like if you read a, uh, a, a more, what would you call it, sort of normative novel, one of the things that you will be able to talk about is authorial voice. Mm-hmm. Um, here, what I tried to do is to have lots of different voices to suggest lots of different ways of looking at, at, uh-huh. at um, a subject. Mm-hmm. And that, that truth, you know, facts are something other than truth, but truth, like with a, a capital T, should be, as one of my favorite writers, Vladimir Nabokov, once said, always written between quotation marks, um, because it always depends on what perspective you're looking at uh, or something from. And that intrigued me. So I really tried to do, you know, David Bowie in different voices, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, whether it's a musicologist or a former mm-hmm. lover or, or an ex-wife or something. And each time you retell Bowie, you get a different Bowie. Right. So... Um, you talk about the different perspectives. So um, you gave us a little bit. So talk about just a few. There's a lot of perspectives in the book, a lot of different perspectives. Um, so tell us just about a few of them and why you chose them and how they showed the different Bowie. Yeah. So so like I say, you know, um, in the, one of the central voices is a musicologist who's actually mm-hmm. – basically writing the book that I'm writing, trying to figure <laughs> right. out what a Bowie is, right? right. Um, and, um, but also, you know, friends. Um, uh, his former wife, his ex-wife, who's, whose name was Angie, mm-hmm. and um, Angie had uh, really brings out a whole different quality. I really tried to enter her voice. You can read mm-hmm. interviews with her and pick up the rhythms and pick up her perspective on everything. And man, you know, they had a, a knockdown, drag out sort of relationship where he was really, you know, certainly emotionally abusive, but also, um, you know, there, there are hints that things got violent at times and on, on both mm-hmm. hands, right? Both, both sides of it. Um, groupies, you know, uh, one of the things that, um, drew my attention was, you know, Bowie sort of bragged in his early days of sleeping with more than a thousand groupies, which boggles the mind, but, but also it means that there was a kind of, you know, power dynamics uh-huh. that he could really use and abuse all of that kind of thing. Uh-huh. But at the same time, as our musicologist will point out, the guy also approached, you know, I don't, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word genius, but, but somebody who was truly breaking ground, mm-hmm. um, you know, sonically and so on, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a really interesting problem. So all of those people I mentioned, you know, knew different Bowies, just like the, the biographers did. And, you know, with, without getting into too much, like, fancy theory stuff, mm-hmm. there's, there's a theorist whose name is Mikhail Bakhtin, and he has this 
great idea uh, that he talks about is unfinalizability. And he says, you know, when we first meet a person or we first meet a text, um, one of the first things we try to do is to finalize those those beings, okay. textual or, or biologic, by sort of categorizing them, you know. So, I mean, it's that first impression thing, right? Mm-hmm. I, I really like that guy. That guy was a really nice guy. Or, mm-hmm. oh, there's something that really rubbed me the wrong way. I could just sense it. Um, and the problem with that, Bakhtin points out, is that through our whole lives, we're always changing. Like we're only finalizable on our deathbed. And even then we're not finalizable because we enter narrative. People right. start talking about us after, after we're gone. And I think that idea of um, bringing up different voices as we were talking about, bringing up this kind of collage form really underscores the idea that, that Bowie isn't finalizable, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Amon, um, you know, his, his wife, when um, he died, I actually give two, completely different readings to in the last two chapters mm-hmm. one a kind of beautiful love story reading one a kind of you know vitriolic um uh discovery of a relationship that was was really quite quite dark why because we don't know it's mm-hmm. like literally they they talked about when um their day was done they sort of left the cardboard figures of Amon mm-hmm. and Bowie outside their apartment door and um uh became themselves inside the apartment nobody ever got to go into that apartment um and that to me is really really interesting so they're performing mm-hmm. themselves but those cells that they're performing aren't the cells they actually are mm-hmm. that's that's an intriguing stuff for at least for a writer and and I think for a human beings. And through these perspectives, so let's go back to, um, you t- kind of were talking about the more you research someone, kind of the less you know about them. And so let's go through like the different perspectives. Do you kind of feel like with the reader reading all of these different perspectives, they might walk away from this book thinking they know less of David Bowie because there's so many perspectives? Because I kind of, in a way, feel that. Mm-hmm. And and that would be mission accomplished, right? <laughs> I, I think, you know, at, at a, a really deep structure level, one of the things that novel is about, in addition to the other things that we've, we've talked about, is the very act of reading, which is, you know, all of us have just become normalized to what, to what reading is, right? Mm-hmm. Acclimated to what it is. But um, reading is always in this profound way, an act of misreading or, mm-hmm. or, you know, reading in multiple. And it's such a strange activity. And, uh, you know, you know, these little black squiggles on parts mm-hmm. of dead trees or, or on glowing screens. And yet, like, whole planetary systems open up um, through mm-hmm. those squiggles. What a strange thing to spend your time doing, right? Right. And, and... We do that with, with people as well, right? We're always reading our world. We're reading people in our world. And we're always misreading because, you know, you probably know one one hundredth of anybody you meet on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Like, what is going on behind how they perform? I don't know. So I think at some level, it 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 feels right, good, and part of you know, my mission statement for this novel, um, to, to challenge the idea of reading for the reader and to keep them sort of 
back on their heels uh, a little bit. And, and of course, you know, this is true, uh, I think, of all writers. We all write the work that we actually want to read. Mm-hmm. And we also write the work that, like, we've loved reading. And I, and I think one of the things that I adore when I get into a, a, a novel writing is just this idea of, what would you call it, difficulty, mm-hmm. both in the act of reading and the act of, mm-hmm. of uh, writing. Mm-hmm. And and that's, I do feel like, so a lot of, when I was, in the past like week or two, as I've been reading the book and having discussions with uh, colleagues in here in the college, a lot of things that I have talked about was the challenging nature of reading this book. And, but then also how it kind of pushed me to kind of think differently about how a novel works and how to understand a novel. And I also found, um, something really interesting about the book is when I kind of got into the rhythm of the book, because I found that it does have a specific rhythm, especially in the perspective of Bowie, that is, the more I got into the rhythm of the book, the more it kind of, I understood, maybe understood it. And the more Mm -hmm. it kind of like resonated with me when I got into the rhythm of how it was written. Did you have that? Because it was kind of poetic, I felt. Is it was, did you, were you aiming for that? You know, and I think in in certain ways, you know, when you're reading a like, okay, so I want to go back to the strangeness of reading for a second. So okay. when you open a book, like, okay, one of the really strange, eerie, uncanny things is that you really never know what's going to happen on the first page. Like uh-huh. the sentence could mean anything, right? So uh-huh. if you pick up a, a novel and the first sentence is, um, her universe blew up. Well, you know, until you read far enough along to know whether you're reading science fiction, uh-huh. in which case that sentence would mean one thing, uh-huh. or psychological realism, in which case it would mean a different thing, like you're just back on your heels, right? And I think with experimental um, literature, which I think this is, is probably, uh-huh. you know, could be talked about right. as, one of the things you're doing as a reader is actually trying to discover a language through which to talk about this thing that is foreign to you, right? Uh-huh. And so that idea of you saying, you know, I got into the rhythms of it, it's like, I think what you were unconsciously probably doing was was coming to understand how you want to talk about mm. this thing, okay. you know? And and that's very cool. And, and just the idea, like, it makes me so... Uh, delighted that you were having discussions with your colleagues about this. And, and, you know, it's like, how do I talk about this thing? Like, what is this thing about? (laughs) And, and the books that most excite me um, are the books that ask us to do that Uh uh, in, 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 you know, interesting and challenging sorts of ways. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I have never read any sort of, I guess, experimental narrative before And so as I got into it, I kind of was, um, I just, I kind of didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. And so then it helped to have conversations with some of my colleagues, one of them who has my graphic designer who works for me. She has um, an undergraduate degree in uh, creative writing. And she took a class from you when she was in school. And so I had to have a conversation with her about this. And she really helped me like understand the form and the more I understood it, the more I kind of got into the book. And it was just so interesting. I'd never read anything like that. Um, but one of the questions I wanted to ask is a um, very specific question. Why, and when you're talking in Bowie's perspective, 
Why do you refer to him as the man instead of saying Bowie says, Bowie did? It always is. The man says, the man stops, the man. I just found that interesting, and I would love to know kind of what. Yeah, yeah. Well, that it's really good on your part to to pick that up too, um, and it kind of backs you into realizing who you're reading about is David Bowie, mm-hmm. um, because it could have been some other man, right. you know, and then and it would switch perspectives or something. And so I did that for a couple different reasons, but it talks exactly to what we're talking about, which is being a little bit back on our heels as a, as a reader. So the noun David Bowie, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's really all I'm working with is this okay. noun that you fill out is powerfully charged with cultural baggage, right? I mean, it's okay. like there are very few people who don't know what a David mm-hmm. Bowie or think they know what a David Bowie or haven't, you know, have heard a song or something like that. So it's a super overdetermined sort of word. And so there's a very different feel of sentences if you say, he crosses the street or David Bowie crosses the street. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, um, especially up front in the novel, to, to defamiliarize Bowie in an in a, um, effort to humanize him. So, okay. so first you see him as just another person getting up in the morning, uh-huh. looking in the mirror, um, you know, sort of having a day ahead of him, listening mm-hmm. to his wife starting to get up. And then it, it, you sort of back into the fact that, oh, wait, no, this human is, is somebody who we all think right. of as a cultural icon. And so, so it was a very you know, specific kind of uh, choice on my part. And the way you spoke about it is exactly um, what I was hoping for, that, that sense of um, defamiliarization, uh-huh. uh, you know, uh, delights me, right? Because, and that's what we do with all, all people. Again, we, we bring all this baggage when we meet somebody and, and then suddenly you back into, hopefully, um, mm-hmm. into what makes them human. Right. Because, I mean, there were a lot of moments where I forgot that I was reading in David Bowie's perspective. And I had oh, to re- I had to remind myself, oh, this is David Bowie's, or like this is his experience. <laughs> I, I would forget sometimes. We see, and I love that because you know I have this theory that I have absolutely no way to prove um, is that that like these icons just like live normal lives right. behind the closed doors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they they sort of perform themselves and they go out in public and they all have this persona. Um, you know, so so Taylor Swift is going to perform Taylor Swift. <laughs> but I imagine, you know, she goes home and, like, eats popcorn right. and, and watches a bad movie. <laughs> right. And, and that makes me, like, really happy um, <laughs> as well. So, you know, I think that, that idea of, like, how charged a pronoun is mm-hmm. – um, um, there, there's this philosopher of the early 20th century, Wittgenstein, who, who talked about um, pronouns being grammatical mistakes. I love oh, I that like idea, that. <laughs> uh, right? And, and nowadays, right, with, with this sort of pronoun tension of do we go with, you know, she or he or they, mm-hmm. like just simply goes back and reinvents right. Wittgenstein's problem. It's a grammatical mistake, and how, whatever pronoun we use, it isn't going to refer to to the noun. Right. Um, it's, it's going to become a problem, not an indicator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's very much what's going on behind that, that choice. What were some of your challenges in writing this book and how did you overcome them? So at the largest level, I, I have to say, um, the hardest thing for me as a writer is getting up in the morning and wanting to write because, oh my God, you know, you look at the blank page and it's like, <laughs> well, there it is again, uh, you know, and, 
And there are so many ways this page can go wrong and only a couple that it can go right. So what do you do to do that? And, and um, I think for me, it's trying to usually go to sleep the night before with a problem that I need to solve and to challenge myself every morning. And, you know, you're not just doing it for one morning, one month, one year, mm-hmm. you know, it usually takes me a couple of years to, to write a novel. So I'm trying to problematize something we, or at least I might otherwise take or, or have taken for granted. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and to think of a novel being, you know, not only a, a tool to help us feel, but a tool to help us think, right. but a tool to help me think mm-hmm. uh, a, about something I haven't really, really thought about. And so, you know, for me, I mean, there's an entertainment culture, right? And mm-hmm. I'm, my novel clearly is not part of that. Um, so as opposed <laughs> to like raw entertainment, which emphasizes, you know, speed and surface, right? Uh-huh. Um, I think of the kinds of novels that I respond to asks us, ask us to do unfamiliar work, to slow down, right, to try to figure things mm-hmm. out, um, to even struggle, uh, which takes us back to that idea of relearning mm-hmm. um, how to focus in our culture yeah. of distraction. I mean, all of us feel this so intensely, the anxiety of waking up every morning and, you know, retrieving your email or, mm-hmm. or, you know, looking at the news or whatever. And, and it's a culture of sort of, it's a video game culture, a TikTok culture. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the really, the stuff that it really speaks to me is the stuff that just says, no, 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 no. That's not living. That's, that's something else. Right. Um, and, and let's, let's, let's work a little bit. Mm-hmm. This is good. What advice do you have for aspiring authors, especially in this experimental storytelling genre? Oh, man. Um, well, they, you know, okay, if we had a couple months, um, I would, I would you know, shape a course around it. But, but succinctly, I would just say, you know, read as much as you can. Not only, um, you know, what's popular, what's out there, what other people are talking about, but crazy little texts. Um, that you come across, you know, a mention of a novel here, a mention of a novel there. Mm-hmm. So the more widely you can read, the the more widely you can write. And then to write, it, it's so funny, you're, you're talking about a former student of mine who is at a creative writing course, and um, they probably have had their ears bleed because <laughs> I'm always going like, okay, you understand that to be a writer, you need to write. Like, mm-hmm. like imagine, you know, a world-class um, Olympian swimmer going, you know, I kind of just wait for the muse and then I swim. It's like, it doesn't work like that. Um, you got to get in there and you got to do it um, on a regular basis. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not whether it gets published or not, but it's about whether you do the work, right? Mm-hmm. And then the, the last thing I would say, especially with this, this whole, you know, innovative or experimental or whatever we want to call it, storytelling, um, did, did, don't accept the way narratives have always come to you. And so, you know, we've all learned these really deep structures of uh, speaking about form being a kind of philosophy, these deep structures of narrative. So if you take like a sitcom mm-hmm. and you track how sitcoms work, they always, um, especially those, those before, say, the last 10 years or so when people really began to play with form, mm-hmm. they take this form of, you know, some kind of um, complication in the first couple minutes with with a laugh track, you know, sprinkling right. jokes throughout, um, you know, breaking for ads every 10 to 12 minutes, and then within about 22 to 24 minutes, resolving. So that you have this really great sense of, you know, um, um, 
everything coming to conclusion uh, unconsciously. And what that says at the level of philosophy is that really complicated problems can be worked out really easily. And it's like, that's not been my experience of living, right? <laughs> right. And so, so like, so how else do you tell narratives, right? How do you tell a narrative about somebody who won't stay stable, who's always unfinalizable? What does that look like? And, and the result will be, you know, every writer will come up with a different result, but, but mine is always crashing in the same car. <laughs> so for my final question, this is the final question I ask everyone on my podcast. What does this world know now because of your work, because of your research that it didn't know before? That is such a cool question. Um, I would, I would say that, you know, the past and, and two different kinds of past, there's the cultural past, right? Which is the thing we call history. Okay. And then there's the personal thing, which is the thing we call, let's say memoir or even just personal memory uh-huh. is never really about what happened. It only appears to be, but rather it's about, how what happened is told, or maybe it's not told. Maybe it's repressed from being told or Mm -hmm. denied. Um, From what perspectives it's being told, Mm -hmm. right? And through what power dynamics it's being told. Like, who's telling this story and why are they Mm -hmm. telling it? Um, and, And that is, you know, then the past is never really the past, but rather, to take us back to the, the beginning of our talk, a mode of reading. Um, and, and do you read astutely? Do you read in a complex way? Do you read in a nuanced way? Um, how, how do you read yesterday? Thank you, Professor Olson. I have so enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate it so much. Oh, listen, Jana, thank you so much. We, we clearly could go on for, yeah. for you know, weeks, but, but thank you ever so much. And thanks so much for some great, great questions. Of course. That was Lance Olson, Professor Emeritus of English. For more information about the University of Utah College of Humanities, please visit humanities.utah.edu and don't forget to subscribe to Humanities Radio.